This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. Several years ago, one of the staff at my daughter's school reached out to me for help. My family was at that school for over a decade, and I did a lot of volunteer work, so people knew me, and they knew I was a lawyer. So this staff person asked me for a referral. Her bank account was frozen, and she got a summons to go to court. But that debt? It wasn't hers. She knew nothing about it and was pretty sure her identity had been stolen. By this time, somebody had pretended to be her and accepted service of the lawsuit, and a judgment had already been entered. She needed a lawyer, and she was hoping I could help her find one. When she came to me, I thought three things at the exact same time. Number one, this is so unfair and she deserves help to fix it. Number two, there is no way she can fix this without a good lawyer. And finally, number three, I have no idea where to send her because she makes too much money for free legal aid. But paying an hourly rate to a private lawyer will cost as much as the debt she is fighting off. Paying the unfair debt or paying lawyer fees, either one would wreck her financial situation. I was stumped. What could I possibly suggest to her as a way to get this fixed? So we call this podcast Pursuing Justice the Pro Bono Files. Pro Bono is short for Pro Bono Publico, which means for the public good. And we mostly assume Pro Bono also means working for free volunteering your time and legal skills. But today, we're going to look at it from a slightly different angle. We'll meet entrepreneurial lawyers who are working for the public good by designing sustainable law firms that help people who can't get legal aid and can't afford a traditional lawyer either. So today, we look at the question, what if the public good can be served by charging predictable, transparent, affordable fees to provide legal help in the areas that moderate and low-income families need. We're going to talk to two lawyers who are invested in serving the public good and making sure working families have access to the right kind of legal help. But they are not volunteer lawyers, and they are not legal aid lawyers. They are part of the Justice Entrepreneurs Project, created and sustained by the Chicago Bar Foundation. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, the Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. We are here to tell pro bono stories, stories that we hope inspire you to take your own pro bono legal work to the next level. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken. I've worked in civil rights, criminal defense, and civil legal aid. But now I'm a principal at the Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy and a faculty fellow at PLI. And I love getting to talk with volunteer lawyers and nonprofit legal projects around the country about the pro bono work that matters to them. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do.
Hello, everyone. My name is Daisy Dominguez. I'm with Justice Connect, and I am the founder of Justice Connect. I primarily focus on immigration representation. Hi, I'm Simone Williams. I am the director of the Justice Entrepreneurs Project at the Chicago Bar Foundation. I manage and direct our 18-month uh, program that helps lawyers start and maintain their own law practices. Simone, what do you think people need to know about the access to justice gap for low and middle income working families? I think people don't realize that the issues that they're facing are legal problems that can be solved by you know legal services. I know that the middle class, the middle market does not have the same access to legal services as uh, low income folks who might have access to pro bono and legal aid services. And people that have more money, wealthy folks can hire, you know, big law firms to help them with their legal problems. So what we're seeing is a lot of people in the middle are either going to court for themselves or they're just not dealing with their legal problem. On my end, in regards to some immigrants that I represent, I know that when they can't afford to have an attorney, then they continue to have no status, right? And so I'll be working with people who have been eligible for many years, but unfortunately due to their finances and how expensive it can be to hire an immigration attorney, they they are just continuing to not obtain lawful status for a long time until they get their finances in order. And to me, that's very heartbreaking, but most uh, traditional immigration firms charge 50% upfront or very high fees that they can't afford. It can be a little counterintuitive, but having an income above the poverty line makes it harder to get access to legal help. Our current legal system has three primary parts. Government lawyers like a public defender. Legal aid lawyers working for nonprofits serving low-income communities. And private law firms charging hourly rates that often start at $200 to $300 an hour. A family of four with an income of $65,000? They make too much money to qualify for free legal aid. But after paying their regular expenses, that is way too little money to afford traditional hourly legal fees. And law firms know that people can't really afford them, so they demand high upfront deposits often running around $5,000 or more. And frankly, it's not even easy to get access to legal help when you are technically eligible for free legal aid because the demand far outstrips the supply. So those people will be eligible for legal aid services, but that doesn't mean they're actually getting those services. There are a couple of other barriers to accessing legal help. To manage the flood of cases, most legal services programs have developed priorities about which kinds of cases they will even accept. So through no fault of their own, a family's legal issue might fall outside of those priorities. And there are pretty severe limitations that prevent federally funded legal services programs from helping most people who are not citizens or legal permanent residents. All those barriers add up to a huge number of people who might be low or middle income and are shut out of the primary sources of legal help. Now, traditional pro bono, lawyers volunteering their time, is an important part of getting help to those people. But traditional pro bono, it just is not enough to close the gap. So these are a lot of barriers to getting help. Why 
and I'm asking this in a kind sense, not a flippant sense, but like, why should we care? Why does it matter to the community of Chicago, Illinois, whether or not folks who fall into this gap get legal help? I think it's just not fair. That that is just not that's not justice, right? Like they don't, they didn't go to law school. They don't understand the complexities of the legal system. And when you don't understand, then you're not properly representing yourself. And if you're not representing yourself properly before the judge or before, you know, whichever agency you are, you're, is handling your case, then you won't have the same outcomes, right? Add what Daisy is saying, when people's needs are met, then they'll be more productive to the community as a whole. But if you're dealing with people that can't find jobs because they don't have their status in order, then like if they have to turn to work that's illegal or they have to do other things to like, they they need to rely on government services. Like if they're not able to take care of themselves, then that doesn't serve the community. So I think it's, it's important for people to have access to just at, have access to legal services so that they can enhance their life and be productive, productive people in their community. Right. And, and I think that, right, also there's the point that if you're you are not living in poverty, but not actually getting access to legal justice and having court matters go poorly for you when you should have won maybe the fastest path to experiencing poverty, right? To losing your job, losing your home, losing your income. And then, and and now you are experiencing it. It doesn't do a whole lot of good to say, oh, well, now that you're at 100% of the poverty level, level, we'd happily give you a lawyer. We would all much be better off if we could keep people in a stable position. We don't really know how many people are leaving their legal problems unresolved because they can't get a lawyer? How many families don't do estate planning? How many don't fight an unfair debt? How many don't get their immigration status adjusted? We do, however, have a sense of how many people are trying to tackle legal problems without any legal help. In 2020, 66,000 cases were filed by self-represented litigants in the Illinois circuit courts. And that number was actually down by 25% because of the pandemic. I would be interested in seeing how many matters are lawyer on one side, pro se person on the other. When the other party has an attorney and the the pro se person doesn't, they really get taken advantage of at that point. And now that's even more heartbreaking to me. Yes, yes. And that's... Eviction cases, that's collection cases, that's family law cases. I mean, I, I, as a legal aid lawyer, there were many times when the person on the other side of the case was but pro se mm-hmm. and also low income. And it is hard. It's really hard as an ethical lawyer to navigate that in a way where you feel like you're both being zealous for your own client mm-hmm. and not taking advantage of the other person's pro se status but it's not your job to save the other person. So that's coming at it from the the most sort of communitarian, like I do care about access to justice for the opposing party side. It's extraordinarily difficult. Not all lawyers are coming at it from that perspective. I see also fraud occurring. A lot of notaries taking advantage of the immigrant situation. I've also seen attorneys themselves who are not licensed taking advantage of the situation. In other words... 
working families who can't get access to legal aid, but who do scrape together the money to pay a high upfront deposit, have no guarantee that they will get good services in exchange for the money. Subpar legal services or even outright fraudulent behavior is a huge risk for these people in the middle. Yeah, I mean, just this week I got a call on yesterday, actually. This individual gave $6,000 to an attorney. The attorney actually is no longer licensed, but they were still claiming that they were practicing. Uh, They took $6,000 because the person was a victim of a crime, so they were filing a U visa. Two years, a couple years ago, they asked them for another $6,000. So this individual asked them for $6,000 upfront to start working on the case. Took the money, didn't do anything. Then a couple years later said, if you want us to keep moving the case forward, then you need to pay us another $6,000. And at that point, that's when the person said, I can't I I don't have any more money. And they contacted me to see what's going on. We found out this person actually isn't even licensed right now. And they just took the individual's money and haven't done a single thing on their behalf. So then this same attorney, well, former attorney, then tells the immigrant, well, if you do anything, I've got all of your paperwork. I've got your birth certificates, your everything about your family. And now they're threatening the immigrant that if they even do report them, for taking their money and, and oh not doing anything, then then they're at risk also. And so then it, it places fear, right? And there was another case where an attorney actually went to jail because of how much fraud he was committing for so many immigrants in, in Indiana. And then there are notaries who, who may be wanting to do the work, but they're just not experienced and don't understand that immigration law is constantly changing. And so they did it the way they did it five years ago. Things have changed and now they messed up the, cl- the client's case, right? They submitted it, but they didn't do it correctly. And now the immigrant is having issues because their paperwork is being denied because of the lack of education that the notary has and experience. If you can believe it, there is even one more barrier to accessing help. Even if you can find the money and you are prepared to pay and you don't fall prey to fraud or incompetence, there might not be any reputable lawyer who wants to work on your issue. Law firms have become more specialized in this century. A lot of the legal needs of low- and middle-income people, like defense against debt collectors, defense against mortgage foreclosure, and small estate probate issues. Those are specialties, and the specialists are mostly working in legal aid. When my friend from my daughter's school asked me for help finding a lawyer, I panicked in part because I just couldn't think of anyone outside of legal aid who would know how to handle her case efficiently. So that's a a lot that folks are... um, dealing with and managing. So, Simone, you are with the Chicago Bar Foundation. When the Chicago Bar Foundation looked at this problem, what did they decide they could do about it? Well, I think the CBF is doing a lot of things <laughs> to combat that. But one of the major things is the Justice Entrepreneurs Project. So the Justice Entrepreneurs Project, it, it has like two, it was created for like two purposes. One purpose was to serve the middle market and to be a bridge so that people can access legal services. So one part is to serve the community. And then the other part is to provide ways for lawyers to start and maintain their own practices. So they basically, our attorneys in our network 
run their practices how they would like to run them with the goal of you know, serving the middle market and making their their services accessible to the middle market by offering set fees, leveraging tech so that, you know, our attorneys can serve anyone from anywhere with a goal of, of building community. So we want to we want to build a legal community that's collaborative. And then we also want to build a community that serves clients and where everybody has access to legal services. So the JEP was birthed from Really, the financial crisis of 2008, um, where you know lawyers were graduating and weren't be weren't finding jobs. So this was an avenue for lawyers to take to you know take their career in their own hands and serve clients that they want to serve, and then also just to be able to like provide legal services to more people in Chicago. Well, I was one of those people at that time. Yeah. I mean, when I was graduating, I was graduating. Yeah. I graduated in 2013. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I always knew from a young age I wanted to go to law school and um, I wanted to serve within legal aid. I wanted to serve communities. I didn't care to be at a big law firm. My plan actually was legal aid. But unfortunately for me at the time, there wasn't a lot of legal aid opportunities. So I I then came across the JP program that summer that I was taking the bar was the first summer that the first class started. And then I applied as soon as I got sworn in in the fall to the second class of the JP because they start every six months. Mm-hmm. So I was able to join the second class. And and at that time, I didn't, I never considered starting my own practice. I never considered myself as like a business person or, you know, talking to people about money or trying to get clients. I just wanted to do the law, help people in need. And that was it. But when I heard about the JP and its mission of really serving uh, low and moderate income communities and that I could have the opportunity to create my own entity that, you know, the sky was the limit. I could have components of legal aid within my business. I could decide how much I would be charging clients, who I wanted to assist pro bono if I wanted to. And the ability to just be able to create anything with this business, it made me realize that my skills and my tools could go further than just working for a legal aid organization or a regular law firm for another business because I I didn't have any limitations on the level of impact that I can make on individuals. And so, but at the time too, I knew nothing about starting a business and knowing that this program was as supportive as it is and how long it was and the description that I read about the amount of support that they were going to provide, I thought it was enough support that I would be able to at least be on the right track versus going at it by myself blindly without doing anything. Um, and I felt like that was perfect timing to to see that the JP started right around the time that I needed it. It was just meant to be. And I'm glad because I think if my life would have been what I would have wanted with the legal aid, I don't know that I would have been as happy or fulfilled or even been able to make as much impact as I've been making in the past decade because I've had Mm -hmm. my practice for 10 years. And this is an exciting project because it does do things like create space for someone like you, Daisy, to say, well, I'm going to do this my way. I'm going to decide what limitations I want to live with and which ones I don't. And 10 years in is, uh, by any measure, a successful venture. Yes. So congratulations. Yeah. 
Thank you. Just to say, like, the JEP is definitely a, a viable alternative for a legal career. If you're looking for autonomy on, like, how like how you want your lifestyle to be, you're looking for freedom and how much you can make and freedom in the types of cases that you take, this is definitely an option for you. And we do provide a lot of resources for you to get your business off the ground. So that includes, like, a boot camp where we, we focus on business development and you can start your, your practice from scratch and we will we will give you all the tools you need to start your business. And then we partner with other organizations and businesses to help you maintain that practice. So you can survive, you can be at, you know, 10 years in practice. So that's, that's what the JEP is like a great alternative if people are looking for that type of freedom. Justice Entrepreneurs Project is harnessing the energy of people who want to do good, but never thought of themselves as business owners. And it's helping them figure out how to make it all work outside of the traditional nonprofit, government-funded structure. It is. Like, you don't have to pick the pros and cons. You can mm-hmm. get the best of everything yeah. and just <laughs> do your own. And that's that's what I love. And I'm actually really glad that it my plan A didn't work and I kind of found JP because I, again, I don't think I would be where I'm at right now. And I love that autonomy. You can do a lot of things and have a lot of autonomy while also making an impact and being accessible to families in need. This year, I ended up working remotely several times in South America. I kept my practice running while I'm working remotely. I don't think I could have done that if I worked for legal aid or worked at a firm. And if anything, I feel like I connected more with my clients being abroad because I was actually learning more about the culture one-on-one meeting the actual families who are in the other country as opposed to just being available by telephone long distance. And so it's combining a hobby of my love to travel with my business and making my connections with my clients even stronger through that. All right. This is an amazing sales pitch for for JEP. Can we get into the nitty gritty a little bit? Like, how does it work, Simone? Like, how does someone get into it? And then once they get in, what do they, what do they do? Great. Um, So we have an application process. We recruit twice a year. We typically take classes after the bar exam. Once you are accepted into the program, then you go through a week-long boot camp where we help you start your, your practice from scratch. So we can take you at any levels. We have people that are coming right out of law school. We have people that are starting second careers. We have moms that are starting their practice or people that have worked in legal aid before. And then after boot camp, we provide a years long worth of training. Um, and that training is focused on all things business development. So that is marketing, tech, client services. We talk about business continuity plans, like everything that you need to run your practice. And then we also provide mentors that that have come from our program. So after you graduate, it, you know, we have people that are alumni that mentor new people in the program. And we also offer business coaching. I mean, that works with our network. And you also do pro bono service. So you're you're building your own 
relationships with people in the legal community and also getting substantive training if that's something that you need. We offer a lot of discounts because we partner with law firms and businesses and or other organizations that have services. So if you are looking for different like client management services or, you know, you want like billing services, we, we partner with a lot of those types of businesses so that you can run your practice at a discounted price. Um, if we were to add up like the value of our 18-month program, it would be around $16,000 per person. But we only we only charge $3,600 and that includes, and that, that's for 18 months and you pay it across the 18 months. And it's it also includes office space. We have all the office amenities that you need. So anything that you would think a lawyer running their own practice would need, we provide that at a huge discount. We just want people that are passionate about being an entrepreneur and passionate about serving the community. I mean, 10 years ago, I don't feel like we had that many resources. <laughs> it's gotten better. Well, they got it good now. I, I think they will crush it for those that are joining the program now with so much support. Who funds this? How do you get it paid for? We are actually fully funded by the Chicago Bar Foundation. The Chicago Bar Foundation funds most of the legal aid organizations in Chicago. And this is a project of the Chicago Bar Foundation. And we've been in existence for 10 years. We, Although we do collect a fee from participants, that doesn't cover what it costs to operate the, the, the program. So we're fully funded by the, by the foundation. Yeah. And they still provide support to alumni. So all of the uh, workshops that they provide to every incoming class, it's always open to alumni. So I love that even as an alumni, I still have access to all of the resources and also the space. As an alumni, one of the main things that one of the main um, benefits of the program is having community. This is a community that is collaborative and is supportive. So if you don't know how to file something or you are not familiar with a, like a judge that's over your case, you can email a, this whole entire network and somebody in this network will know the answer or be able to point you in the right direction. So that's one of the real gems of the program is that you have a supportive community backing you as you are on your, your individual entrepreneur journey. Another thing that sets apart uh, our attorneys from other attorneys in the legal community in Chicago is that we do not charge by the hour. None of our attorneys charge by the hour and that is because we want our services to be accessible. Our attorneys offer a variety of fee structures. So some offer flat fees, some offer subscription fees, payment plans, fee shifting, a variety of things, but none of them include billing by the hour. One way our attorneys make their fees accessible is by unbundling their services. So you can decide to handle some parts of your case yourself and then hire one of our attorneys to come in and help you with things that you that, that you need as you go along. So in, in those two ways, we our attorneys really offer accessible services to everyday people. Yeah, and I I love that we're able to to steer away from billable hours. It means flexibility, flexibility to be able to organize the fee structure in a way that is accessible financially to the clients, right? And so what I do is I do flat fees and subscription plans. So my clients know how much this entire case is going to cost them. And then we start making it flexible with the subscription planning on, well, how much can 
can you afford to be making uh, paying every month, right? And depending on the case, depending on how long the case takes, we can set up different payment plans and subscriptions to to do six months, eight months, two years. So it really kind of depends on my clients. And if the current plan that I offer them seems not manageable, then okay, then let's talk about how can we reduce that? Let's brainstorm other ways that it could be accessible to you, right? And so that I, I love being able to do that because that really gives people the opportunity to be able to hire an attorney right away. Most of my clients have been able to be able to work with me. And then that allows them to work with me sooner. Mm-hmm. We can start working right away because of the minimal deposit that I have and the flexibility with the with the subscription. Yes, Daisy is charging fees, but she is also tied to her mission of finding a way to make it work for the community that she wants to serve. I know that any private lawyer can charge a client less or agree to do something pro bono, but that is typically the lawyer giving a kind of charity on a one-time basis. Justice Entrepreneurs Project is teaching attorneys that they can have an actual business model that routinely charges accessible amounts, lets them do fulfilling work, and sustains the community that the lawyers care about. We want to show that this is acceptable for you to join our program. So then you can also charge your clients that way. And basically you can collect on your fees because that's an, an issue that a lot of our attorneys, a lot of attorneys have is collecting fees. You're more likely to collect if people can afford what you are charging. And if anything, right. I feel like the having subscriptions, flat fees and and payment plans actually makes your business more sustainable, right? Because then if you're charging by the hour and this client didn't expect to pay that much and they financially don't have it, then here you are at a loss. And whereas with the subscriptions, the client knows that they can afford that. They've hired you understanding that this is what it is. And it also gives me a sense of security financially Mm -hmm. that I've always got money coming in the door. And in the last 10 years I've been practicing, it is very rare for a client to not be able to come up with their monthly payment plan because we talk about it before we agree upon it. The key insight that I see in the JEP program is strategy. You can be the kind of lawyer you want to be if you approach it strategically. And then every year I always evaluate, even though I have a pretty good plan for my business now, every year I'm still constantly evaluating. I'm going over again, what did these different cases, how much work is in it? And so every year at the end of the year, I'm reevaluating my fees to see, is this making sense? Is next year? Yeah, I, I think what Daisy said is exactly how our, how our attorney should be approaching this. You know, your fee structure is something that's going to change constantly. It should change constantly. All of our attorneys do need to be committed to not charging by the hour. It, it's based mm-hmm. on the value you give to your client. It's also based on, you know, what what you need to bring in at the end of the month as your bottom line. So you have to integrate all of that and the market prices in order to figure out what you specifically will charge your clients for your work. And the work that, you know, Daisy's doing is life-changing. So, you know, and it takes a lot of experience and expertise to know how to do it properly and to do it right the first time. So people are paying you for that. 
I provide a lot of support to my clients. I go above and beyond in terms of explaining things to them, making sure that they understand the process. I'm always being told by my clients that they are able to speak with me and really, and and I can break things down to them Mm -hmm. for them to really understand. So it's like that relationship that I build with my clients, that attention to detail that I put into the cases, the high success rate that I have because of the way that I work with my clients, the way that I work on the cases is the reason why I can, I have have most of my cases approved, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the the additional value that I'm providing to my clients. I'm not just a lawyer. I'm a lawyer that does quality work and mm-hmm. actually spends time working with you, actually cares about, you know, supporting you through this process, educating you, empowering you, not just handling the case, giving you your documentation, but making you feel like you understand this process and feel empowered mm-hmm. that this is your case, right? One of the things I think that's interesting about JEP, when I look at that list, it is areas of the law that are specialties that the people who need help with them tend to be little, middle or low income, like consumer debt collection. Mm-hmm. So you could be able to afford a $300 an hour lawyer, but most $300 an hour lawyers um, in a traditional law firm would have neither the knowledge or the interest in defending you on your consumer debt collection case. But the JEP lawyers are developing specialties in areas that are of great need in both that middle income group and also in the low income group that is uh, not able to access free legal services, which therefore what? Is there a question in there, Lish? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Do you agree with me? Like that's a pattern that I'm seeing. Do you think I'm seeing it accurately? We do encourage our attorneys to, to focus on, you know, a couple areas of law max. We do not really accept attorneys that are trying to run a general practice firm. We want you to be specialized in an area because that's how you're able to charge accessible fees because you know what you're doing. And it's not like you're just taking like a debt collection here and then a divorce over here. Like we we want you to be focused on, you know, a couple areas of law so you can be so you so you can be, you know, specialized and have that expertise in that area and charge accordingly. It's just too difficult if you're trying to run a general practice firm to set accessible fees at the same time. Well, also, you can't be as efficient, yes. right? Or you can, if you focus on one area of law, you can have, you can organize your your firm in a way that certain things are repetitive and it's just a matter of, okay, let's change the name, being more efficient with how you're preparing things. And those are some of the things that they teach us in JP, right? Or how can you be more efficient without having to do things over and over and have a system that makes it faster for you to get your work done. So if you could get your work done faster, you can be more flexible with how you charge. Exactly. That makes an enormous amount of sense. Can you give listeners an idea, Simone, of what are the, the what are the variety of topics that JEP lawyers tend to specialize in? Yes. Uh, we cover uh, an array of, of practice areas. So that would include family law, guardianship, uh, probate, estate planning, consumer debt, housing. So housing would include evictions. It also would include mortgage foreclosure or like uh, land disputes. We also have people that handle a small business issue, education law. So there's, there's a, it's a wide array of things. When lawyers have that level of specialization and efficiency and a strong business model, then they can make their work accessible to people in need. And the lawyers are empowered to make smart decisions about when they want to be flexible 
or when they want to do traditional volunteer pro bono work. I've served many clients in different ways. I mean, normally I'll try to do pro bono cases for fundraising, silent auctions, or things like that. As part of their silent auctions or fundraisers, I will offer free citizenship applications. Several years ago when there was the Women's March, what I did instead of marching that day, I was at the office helping a couple of women apply to become citizens. And so I offered to to do a couple of cases for women that were interested in becoming citizens as my way of, you know, marching, but not physically. And so (laughs) when things like that are happening, I'll decide, I'll take a look at my capacity and decide when I can offer pro bono cases uh, throughout the year. And then when I also see clients who I have, I had a client, this, this story always breaks my heart because this client heard the attorney on the radio and I hate when immigration attorneys on the radio are terrible. And then they're announcing themselves on the radio because immigrants hear them and they think this one's on the radio. They must be good. And this attorney did a very terrible job. The clients had a strong case that should have been won. But for the attorney's lack of experience and poor, poor work that they did, the client ended up having not only their case denied, but they got placed in deportation proceedings. Mm. And then on top of that, the attorney charged them, you know, an arm and a leg for these cases. So then uh, the attorney, once he got the notice that, that they were being placed in deportation proceedings, then tells the client his only options really were to just sign a voluntary departure and return back to his home country. And so at that point, that's when the client came to me because he wasn't willing to just sign to, to return and wanted to see if he really had a chance to stay here with his family. And I reviewed the file I reviewed the actual work the attorney did, and I was just shocked at just how many errors, what things weren't done, how little work even went into this case. And because of those errors is why immigration was then asking so many questions and then ultimately denied. So what I ended up doing is, and then on top of that, the the, the client didn't have as much money, so I really had to try to be flexible in terms of how was I going to be able to do this much work, but still being financially accessible to this client who needed my help immediately because we only had about a month turnaround to be able to file a motion to reopen, reconsider. And so I, I became very understanding of that situation. So in that circumstance, I normally will always ask the fees to be paid in full by the time we finish. So I don't file paperwork if there's an outstanding balance, but with circumstances where there's an urgency and then you know it really like touches my heart I was like it's fine we will continue and do a longer payment plan because otherwise you won't be able to have anyone helping you so I became very flexible with regards to the payment plan options did the work I was able to get the case approved so filed the motion to reopen I highlighted all of the errors on behalf of the attorney submitted everything that should have been submitted from day one they approved it and then after that um, went to court got the case terminated. Um, the client didn't even step foot in the courthouse because we were able, I was able to get everything resolved um, before they even showed up to their first court date. And so that is like a situation where I'm always trying to do, do quality work, 
be financially accessible. Had it not been for the way that I structure my practice, I don't know if this client would have had representation. And if he didn't, he would have gone to court. The judge, they would have been representing themselves. The judge would have just issued an order of deportation when clearly this client had a case and had a way of staying here lawfully, right? And then then also whenever there's like, it changes with DACA. So every couple of years, there was always changes with DACA and urgencies of when DACA needed to be done. So during those periods of time, I would do workshops and clinics for myself where I would be able to assist uh, a large number of people in one day, but at a lower cost because I'm seeing everyone in one day and be more efficient with following mm-hmm. them. So I was able to have lower fees during that period, those periods of time when it was very urgent to submit those applications within a short period of time. So depending on when things are changing with immigration or any urgencies are going on, that's when I can develop little clinics for myself or days where I could be at a lower cost to get more cases out the door and done before those changes happen. And that's why I love having my own practice and being able to have these accessible fee structures that allows me to help people during certain periods of time with regards to immigration or in circumstances where, you know, someone is in a very difficult situation. Here's what I like about the Justice Entrepreneurs Project. It's just full of both-end thinking rather than either-or thinking. Daisy is so completely in charge of her own capacity to do good precisely because she is an excellent business strategist. And you heard her. She thought she was destined to be a lifelong salaried legal aid lawyer. It's the innovative mindset, the business training, and the material support from JEP that made her success possible. I think you really need to have a good sense of your business and have financial structure within your business to be able to do this. Like with asylum seekers, I have a teenager right now that he came, he both his parents are back in his home country. So for him, I had to set a very low monthly payment plan for almost two, three years out, you know, but I'm able to do a two, three year out payment plan because I've got revenue coming in from other steady clients on a monthly basis and and then savings, right? So mm-hmm. over time is making sure you're always having savings and those savings are continuing to grow so you can help people during these situations when it comes. Do you have stories from other JEP attorneys about successes? Yeah, I have something short and sweet and very anecdotal. So, uh, you know, it's funny in, in attorney circles sometimes they say, I can't even afford myself. So I had, I had an attorney friend who was going through a divorce. So she was struggling. I reached out to some people in the network and she was able to find an attorney in the network that was able to start her case and charge her $500 a month, which helped her to get through her divorce quickly. And it was affordable to her because she was like really afraid of not be either having to represent herself or just waiting until she could get the money together. Yeah. And waiting to get a lawyer can make the case harder. Can make it even worse. So she was able to find someone who was able to make their services accessible by charging that monthly fee instead of saying, oh, I'm not even going to start your case until you give me $3,000. So I I think in that way, you know, we help a wide range of people and, you know, could not afford an attorney, you know? So I I think like, you know, this is, this is much bigger than just, you know, helping low income people. This is helping like, this is helping people, it's helping everyday people. So that's the, that's the wide reach that the JEP has. Yeah. As a person in Chicago who often gets asked for legal referrals, 
JEP is a brand I trust. So each of you is an individual, mostly sole practice, some like, you know, two lawyer, three lawyer firms. But I trust the brand of JEP. Most of the lawyers on this list, I do not know, but I trust this project. I believe that they are really trying to do what they say they're trying to do. And so that's where I would start. And in fact, I just did a pro bono clinic for legal aid with somebody who legal aid is not going to be able to take on her case, Mm -hmm. who works but is underpaid because her profession is underpaid for what she does. And and I don't know if JEP is going to be able to help her, but it was an alternative that I was able to point her to. Oh, great. That's great news. It means a lot to me to be able to say there's a source I trust to help. So I just just want to take a minute to say that because I really am grateful for it. I like knowing JEP exists in the community. Okay, so remember my friend who worked at my daughter's school? Well, it is true that I did panic at first because I didn't know where to send her when her identity was stolen and she had a problem with debt collectors. But then I remembered. There was a thing at the Bar Foundation at the time I only sort of remembered how it worked, but I went to the website to see if the Barr Foundation could help. And sure enough, there was a lawyer in the Justice Entrepreneurs Project who specialized in consumer debt collection cases. I helped my friend get in touch with him. And I have to tell you, he was so confident, so completely undaunted by the case. He knew exactly what to do. He knew how to do it. And he was able to tell my friend exactly how much it would cost her to get his help. And the fee, it was reasonable. She could afford it. Just hiring him relieved her stress about the situation. And then when he got the judgment vacated, showed she had never been served and persuaded the creditor to go away because they had the wrong person, she was over the moon. And that was my aha moment. These law firms are just as important as free legal aid to meeting the community's legal needs and bridging the justice gap. I love the mission behind JEP, and I I love that I've been able to do that with my own practice. And I definitely encourage other attorneys to consider it. I think for me, it was life-changing. I, like I've said before, I don't think I would be as happy as I am now or as accomplished or, you know, be where I am in life right now if it hadn't been for the JP. It really supported my business and my business has really shaped the, the life that I have today and how fulfilled I feel in practicing law and the work that I'm doing for my clients. There are legal incubators like JEP all across the country. If you want to look for a legal incubator in your community, because maybe you're looking for a career switch, or maybe you're looking for affordable lawyers you can trust, you can find a link to the American Bar Association's directory of legal incubators on this episode's webpage. Thank you so much to Daisy Dominguez and Simone Williams for taking the time to teach us about this innovative approach to lawyering for the public good. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. 
This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu slash pro bono.